Welcome to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. My name is Chris, and I'm so glad that you're tuning in with us. If this is your first time listening or you'd just like to reach out, feel free to shoot an email to hello at capitalcitychristian.org, and I'd be glad to talk with you. We're starting a brand new series this week where we go through the book of Colossians, which is a letter written by a guy named Paul about a big Jesus for life's big problems. And this week, our senior minister, Doc Patterson, wants to dig in to who this guy named Paul even is and why he's even worth listening to. Well, thanks again for listening, and let's get started. Morning. Glad you're here. I was just glancing at the news just this morning. I saw an article about a 2018 Pew Research report, and they were studying the the growing number of what they're calling nuns when people ask, uh, what's your religious affiliation? More and more just saying none. And the vast majority of the people who are now marking down nuns used to be Christians. They're ex-Christians. Some call them de-Christians. Most of them are under the age of 35. They tried to figure out some of the reasons for it. Some of them said they just don't believe what we teach. Some don't like our positions on social issues, so they push back. Some don't like religious leaders. I can understand that one. The guy who was writing the article was trying to get to the heart of what was going on. and He says basically a lot of them just don't think it's true. They're unaware of the rich evidential base of our faith. Why we believe. They don't understand why we believe. And he said we need a, a rich forensic faith. It's what he called it. Belief in God that can stand up to the evidence, to the challenges. And I think that there are other reasons too why more and more people are pushing Jesus away, but I think he put his finger on a real problem. And what he was putting his finger on was part of what this series is going to be about for the next three months. You see, I don't care who you are, there's some questions that you're going to have to answer, and your answers to these questions are going to shape your life. In fact, any one of these questions can start you down a path. Do I get married? To whom? Answer that one, it's going to start you down a path, isn't it? After high school, do I get a job, go to college for something else? It's going to start you down a path. Where do I live? Frankfurt, Central Kentucky, do I need to get out of this place? That's going to start you down a path. We face all these big questions that are going to start you down a path, you know, Mac or PC, cats or cards, right? GMOs or non-GMOs, who cares, right? That's the kind of questions that are going to work some people up, start you down a path. I think there are questions that are bigger. Here are some of the bigger questions that I think everybody's going to have an answer to, and every one of them starts you down a path. They shape you. How did all this start? Where did it come from? Is anything... Is everything that is just an accident or is there really a creator? Why are we here? I mean, is there a purposeful life other than what I make of it for myself? Or this one, is there there really a right and a wrong? Is there really a right and a wrong that stands outside of what I think is right and wrong for me? Is my morality going to be measured by someone bigger than me? Or this one, are we human beings fundamentally different? Or are we just animals, maybe a little bit more evolved than some of the other animals? Or this one, do you think everything is predetermined? Do you think you have any real freedom at all? Or are we just playing out what nature and nurture have basically programmed us to do? And here's one that all of you are going to ponder someday, I guarantee it. 
What happens when we die? What happens when we die? Nothing? That'll be a relief to a lot of folks if that's what takes place. Or do our spirits just start all over again in another body? Or is there really a heaven and a hell? And how much does that matter to me today? Those are big questions. Every one of them is going to start you down a path. I think there are two bigger. I think these are the most basic questions that you're ever going to answer. And your answer to these two are going to start you down a path. Number one, is there a God? Is there really a God? What do you think? Is there a God? Number two, is Jesus him? Is Jesus him? He claimed to be God. I mean, if he is, if Jesus was right when he claimed to be God, then what you do with Jesus is going to be the single most important thing you ever do with your life. That's the big one. So how do you decide? Big questions. How do you decide? How do you decide who Jesus is? Are you you're just going to figure that out all out by yourself? You know, just whatever you think he's going to be and that's what he's going to be? What do you know? Who are you going to allow to speak into your life about Jesus, about God? Who are you going to listen to? Your family's going to try to influence you about Jesus. What do they know? Your friends are going to tell you who they think he is. What do they know? Your teachers, your professors are certainly going to tell you who they think he is. (laughs) And they're going to sound smart and use a lot of big words. I was a prof once. I was pretty good at that. What do they know? What do they know? Politicians, athletes, entertainers, all of them have their opinions. And you're listening to their opinions every single day. What do they know? What do they know? Who are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to your pastors? What do guys like us back up what we say about God and Jesus and all that kind of stuff with? What do we know? And then there's the Bible. Written by guys like Peter and John and other of Jesus' disciples and the Apostle Paul. What do they know? What do they know? Are they worth listening to? Are they credible? Are they worth listening to more than your own conjectures about who God and Jesus are? Or those of your opinionated friends? Or those of your opinionated professors? Or your opinionated preacher? I think so. We're going to spend the next three months studying a little tiny letter written by the Apostle Paul to a place called Colossae. Paul is going to say some amazing things about Jesus and some very countercultural and some very counterintuitive things about what it means to be a Jesus follower. And Paul thinks we should listen. He thinks we should listen. He thinks that people like us ought to lean in when he talks about Jesus and Jesus following. Should we? And some of you guys are thinking, well, it's in the Bible, dork, of course. Stupid question. And others of you are thinking, what gives a quaint, unenlightened, old dead guy named Paul the right to direct what I think about God and how I should live my life? It's a good question. Paul thinks we should listen. In fact, in one sense, he kind of saw himself, like you, you could call it as kind of a master mechanic for Jesus' followers in their churches. He thinks that he has the spiritual authority and he has the knowledge, he thinks, to get people like us started on the right path and then to tweak us when we start drifting. He thinks that he has the authority and he thinks he has the knowledge to direct and correct people like us. Does he? 
Kind of like this. Imagine this straight as an arrow, huge multi-laned highway, lots of room. And so you go into the middle of the road with your car and you point your car in the right direction and you set your cruise control and then you kind of lean back and pull out your phone and start with Facebook or Netflix or a video game and just cruise. By the way, this is not a recommendation. This is an illustration. You're on cruise. Eventually you are going to start to drift, Right? You're going to start to drift. Maybe your car alignment is off, or maybe your tire pressure is out of whack, or maybe one of your brakes starts seizing a little tiny bit. You're going to start drifting. Maybe it's not your car. Maybe it's the road. Maybe, maybe the road is sloped, or maybe there's potholes in the road, or maybe you're going to be blown to the side by some passing semi. We're kind of like that. We choose to follow Jesus. We start out on this journey. We put ourselves heading the right direction. Sometimes we put ourselves on cruise control. Sometimes because of issues inside of us. Sometimes because of pressures from people who are outside of us. For whatever reason, we start to drift. All of us start to drift. And this Paul believes that he has the authority and the knowledge to straighten us out. Do you agree? Are you going to let him do that for you? Because we all drift. I mean, some of us drift to the right, right? We figure conservative is good, so really conservative must be better, and really, 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 really conservative must be best. So we drift to the right of God. God gave us some rules to live by. Good start, God. Let me finish it up for you. In Paul's world, there was a church in Galatia that was more conservative than God. So he writes them a letter to straighten them out. And he expects people who drift like they did to listen to him. Others drift to the left. There was a church in Paul's world that drifted way left. They were way more liberal than God. They were like getting drunk during communion. Thinking they were so enlightened that when one of their guys married his own mom, they were like, we don't judge this church. And they were putting rainbows on their camels and coexist bumper stickers on them. Paul writes a letter to straighten them out. In fact, he wrote several to straighten them out. And he expected them to listen. And us. Should we? Now guys, if you're not a Jesus follower yet, I think you need to lean in and listen to this guy. I think he's worth listening to way more than some of the other people that are trying to influence you about God and Jesus. If you're a new Jesus follower, I think you need to lean in hard because Paul is going to give you the direction that you need to get started straight on your journey. And then if you're an old Jesus follower like me, we need to listen too because we all tend to drift. We need to listen to the guy because God handpicked him to guide us. So we're going to spend three months unpacking some of the amazing things that Paul says about Jesus in this little letter. Some of the really counterintuitive and countercultural things that he's going to say about following Jesus. Bottom line, do you think he's worth listening to? Do you think maybe his opinions about God and Jesus following are worth more than your own? Or those of your parents? Or those of your friends? Those of your other heroes. Because the bottom line, people in our world are going to disagree with Paul a lot. Chances are you're going to disagree with Paul a lot. 
So you're going to have to make a choice. Who are we going to listen to? This is big. So Paul starts out his letter to the Colossians like this. He says, this letter is from Paul. It's from Paul. Chosen by the will of God. Chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And it's also from our brother Timothy. We're writing to God's holy people, saints, in the city of Colossae, which is why it's called Colossians, who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. Now, this is really kind of a weird letter for Paul. Usually he writes to big churches in big cities. Most of the letters that he writes are to big churches in big cities, places like Ephesus and Corinth and Rome, giant cities in that world. The Colossian church is probably the least important church in the least important town of any of the New Testament letters. I've got a satellite map of the region. There's the Mediterranean Sea right smack there in the middle. Upper left, there's Italy. You can see the boot and Greece over here, places like Corinth and Athens. You go down to the bottom and that's northern Africa. Here's Egypt. You can see the Nile Delta. You work your way up on the right-hand side. That's Jerusalem. This is Israel, Damascus, Syria. These places are still in the news. And right there in the middle is what is now Turkey. What is now Turkey? Ephesus is over on the coast, a big city, and about 100 miles to the east is Colossae. Colossae. A real place. Real people. And although they're not marked on this map, Colossae is wedged between some really big towns, much bigger than it is. Laodicea and Hierapolis. Colossae was kind of like a Frankfurt wedged between Lexington and Louisville, right? The smaller one of the two, only... Colossae didn't have a capital there. And when Paul wrote this letter to this church, the church was very, very young. Probably no more than maybe five years or so, maybe a couple years older than that, but not much. And they were in a culture that was very toxic to Jesus' followers, much like our own. And these Colossians didn't have a New Testament. It was just being written. They didn't have a New Testament yet to keep them straight. And they didn't have a lot of experienced Christians around to try to lean on. So Paul steps in, an apostle of Christ Jesus, called by the will of God. He steps in. And that's what he calls himself, an apostle of Jesus, an apostle of the single most important person ever. An apostle of the single most important person any one of you will ever choose for or against. Because the most important thing about you now and forever will be what you do with Jesus. It'll define who you are. It'll define who you are when you die. And Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. If he was right, what you decide about him is more important than anything else about you. Paul calls himself an apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You know what an apostle is? Literally in the Greek, the word apostle just means someone who is sent. Someone who is sent, he's, he's a messenger, he's an emissary of Jesus. An apostle is someone that I authorize to represent me, to speak for me, to work for me. In the New Testament, there are actually two kinds of apostles, depending on who is sending them out. Just someone who is sent. A church could send out an apostle. A church could send out an apostle to speak for them, to represent them, to work for them. And then besides these apostles that I would call with a little a, there are the twelve the 12 apostles chosen by Jesus and Paul. The apostles I would call the big A. His authorized representatives, his messengers, his emissaries. These guys were chosen by Jesus 
guided by God's Holy Spirit to speak for him, to tweak for him. He selected them to be kind of the master mechanics of the early church, kind of the pastors to the pastors, to anyone else who needed pastoring. Paul says, that's who I am. That's what Jesus called me to do. I am an apostle of Christ Jesus. And for 2,000 years, we Jesus followers have believed him. And this Paul is one of the giants, not just of church history. Guys, I'm telling you, he's one of the giants of the history of our world. I think after Jesus, his words have probably shaped history more than any other man. And for us Jesus followers, after Jesus, he's one of the big two. There's Peter and there's Paul. In fact, the book of Acts, which is kind of the history of the early church, first half of it is devoted to Peter. The second half, it's devoted to Paul. Peter's story, then Paul's story. And Paul goes on to write 13 books that made it into our New Testament, 13 out of 27. Guys, when it comes to Jesus and Jesus following, what Paul says, I think, is bigger than what I think, than what my friends think, than what my professors have thought, or what any other religious guru running around this world thinks. We believe that what the Apostle Paul says about Jesus and Jesus following trumps any of our opinions. And that when he speaks, we need to listen. Let me tell you why. Here's a question for you. Did Paul grow up a Jesus follower? Anybody know? Not a chance. He did grow up religious, hyper-religious. In fact, the first time we encounter Paul, he is running with a pack of religious zealots, super committed, super devoted, super angry men. Angry because in the name of God, they thought, in the name of God, they hated Jesus followers. They hated people like us. You still hear that one a lot. You've probably noticed in your own lifetime that some really evil and vile things are done in the name of God. They're not done in the will of God. They're done in the name of God. And that was Paul and his pack of wolves. Paul was kind of the alpha of the group. They were going from town to town persecuting and opposing and sometimes even imprisoning Christians, sometimes even murdering people like us. In fact, the very first time Paul pops up in the book of Acts, there's a church leader by the name of Stephen. Isn't that a great name for a church leader? (laughs) Paul and his thugs show up and they stone him. And I'm not talking about pebbles. I'm talking about rocks big enough to break stones and uh, bones and crush skulls. It's a public execution of this Christian leader. And it says the guys who actually threw the rocks laid their coats at the feet of Paul, which probably makes him the alpha of the group, their leader. He's powerful, he's dangerous, and he's violent. Next time he pops up in the the New Testament, he's on a mission from God, heading towards Damascus to kill some Jesus followers or imprison them in in that city and Now, you got to understand, this is a few years after Jesus had been executed, after he'd been raised from the dead, after he had ascended back to the Father. So Paul hadn't seen Jesus face to face yet. And somehow Jesus shows up on the scene and he punches Paul in the face, not literally. He does knock him to the ground and blind him and rebukes him for doing in the name of God what was exactly opposite to the will of God. And Paul is honest enough man, and he's perceptive enough man to stay down. In fact, he's smart enough to do a 180. 
he realizes that he's messed up. And he gets straightened out by Jesus himself in this face-to-face encounter. And this guy who was a mortal enemy of Jesus not only becomes a Jesus follower, he is called by God to lead his church. Paul, chosen by the will of God, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. That became his call. That became his mission in life. Now, as you might guess, it took a while for the Christian Jesus followers to, to buy it, to accept this guy. Hey, did you guys hear that Paul became a Jesus follower? Paul? You mean Paul Bin Laden, that guy? And what are the chances? I mean, there's a pastor's conference, and they invite Paul to speak. And he says, okay, all you guys, please close your eyes and bow your heads. And they're saying, uh-uh. No one's going to close your eyes with you in the room, Paul. We're certainly not going to bow our heads. And would you mind taking your vest off? We'd kind of like to see what's underneath it, Paul. It took Christians a long time to learn to trust this guy. But they discovered that his was about as solid a conversion as you could dream. Hating Jesus to a passionate love for Jesus. To wholeheartedly serving Jesus from persecuting Christians to be one of the prime targets of the persecutors. And eventually it became clear that his was a radical transformation, which in my mind makes him way more credible. Way more credible. Because this Jesus hater became one of the most fearless, passionate, radical of the Jesus followers. He was not a naive, gullible, credulous, childlike pushover. And I like that. Now, a lot of people in our world, maybe even some of you guys, suffer from what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. We figure, well, that was a long time ago, and we're a lot smarter now, right? We're a lot more sophisticated now. They were kind of gullible and simple back then. Right? That's just naive. No, they didn't have the technology that we have today. They didn't have the information base that we have today, but they were incredibly smart. And I've watched students try to read their stuff and it goes right over their heads. I've watched, I've I've been there and I've seen some of the things that these guys built with their hands 2,000 years ago and it's still there. Blows my mind. I'm not sure that they, we have evolved from them at all. In fact, one guy said he thinks we're devolving. He says, I don't know that we came from monkeys, but I'm sure, pretty sure we're getting there uh, if we continue down this path. Paul was a smart guy, fluent in Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, probably Latin, possibly a couple more languages. I've studied a few languages. I'm fluent in one, kind of. His education was second to none. Back then, you didn't go to a university. You selected a teacher and hoped that they would choose to teach you. He selected Gamaliel, one of the leading rabbis of that world. In fact, people today still study Gamaliel. I was a prof once. 2,000 years ago, they're not going to be studying my stuff. Paul was incredibly bright, incredibly articulate, writing 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Some people think he wrote the book of Hebrews too. I don't. 13 of his letters made it into the New Testament and they've been studied by the finest minds in our world for 2,000 years ago, for 2,000 years. And we're still writing books about what he wrote. It's kind of amusing. 
every once in a while I chuckle a little because I'll hear that one of your teachers in some high school or one of your profs in college kind of mock and ridicule Paul. Maybe they poke at him because they find him archaic, unenlightened and unsophisticated like we are, even offensive. Maybe they poke at him because they think he took the pure and simple teaching of, of Jesus and twisted it into a religion. Maybe they poke at him because they think stupidly that he was a sexist or a homophobe. And maybe when they poke at Paul, maybe we should poke back. I'm not suggesting you do this because we try to be gracious. You know, I bet in 2,000 years, people will probably not be reading your books and studying your words. And I'll bet your letters will probably not have been translated into about 3,000 languages. And I'll bet your words will not have transformed billions. You can't just blow this guy off by saying, well, my teachers think he was unenlightened and my friends think he was too tightly wound and I just don't agree with him some of the time. And he was there. He had this face-to-face -face with Jesus. He rubbed shoulders with the others who were the eyewitnesses. He preached Jesus to a skeptical world at an incredibly personal cost. Incredibly perceptive, brilliant, courageous, fearless, driven, and guided by God. You think he's worth listening to when he talks about Jesus and following Jesus even more than some of the others that we tend to let influence us? This guy did a 180 because of a face-to-face -face with Jesus, and from that point forward, he held nothing back. Do you know where Paul was when he wrote this letter? Any idea? He's in prison. He's in Rome. He's not doing jail ministry. He's in prison. Their jails didn't have three squares a day and a laundry service and TVs in a weight room. Paul was in jail waiting to see if he was going to live or die. And this wasn't the first time he had been in jail for preaching Jesus. Because back then, preaching Jesus like he did could get you dead. And think about it. You're in prison, let's say. How many of you guys are writing theology? Now, you might be doing some praying. Not the kind of praying Paul was doing. We're going to look at that next week. What he prayed in prison was just blowing your minds. In one of their jails, most of us would be praying for a way out. We'd be writing letters to people who might have some way to get us out. We'd be doing whatever we could to stay alive. Paul? Paul is in prison writing powerful enough letters that they make it into our New Testament, deep enough letters that some of the smartest men in the history of the world have spent a lifetime studying them without ever getting to the bottom. Hmm. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, this jail term for this guy, Paul. Over the course of maybe 15 or 20 years of ministry, he walks an average of about 20 miles a day, perhaps, it seems. When he gets to the next stop, they're not waiting there with water and refreshments. More often than not, they're suspicious, they're hostile. Sometimes they try to kill him, again, for preaching Jesus. In fact, in one of his letters, he kind of summarizes what he's been through as an apostle of Jesus. This is what he says. He says, five times, five times Jewish leaders have given me 39 lashes. In other words, five times they beat the snot out of him with whips. Just one of those could kill a man. And he'd bear the marks of those whippings for the rest of his life. How many of them would it take to make you quit? 
Paul says three times, I was beaten with rods. They were not twigs. Think more like clubs. Three times. Once he says, I was stoned. He's not talking meth. He's talking attempted murder. He says, three times I was shipwrecked. How long would it take you to quit sailing? He's driven. He says, I've spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. He says, I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced dangers from rivers and robbers. I've faced dangers from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities and the deserts and on the seas. I've faced dangers from men who claim to be believers but are not. He says, I've worked hard and long, enduring sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty. I've gone without food because I serve Jesus. Because I was chosen by Jesus to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God he says I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm this guy deserves a hearing he's passionate committed devoted faithful sold out and guided by God handpicked and guided by God I know he was polarizing, even back then, still is. People still love him or hate him. But when you come face to face with the real Paul, you can't ignore him. First he hates Jesus, then he meets Jesus, then he gives his, the rest of his life to Jesus at incredible personal cost. Do you think he's a slightly more credible witness than some of the dorks we tend to listen to? One of the early church fathers by the name of Chrysostom kind of compares history to a set of scales. He says, if you put the whole world on this side of the scales and you put the soul of the Apostle Paul on the other side, Paul's soul wins. Martin Luther, one of the greatest religious leaders in the history of the church, calls Paul the wisest man ever after Jesus. Some of your friends, guys, some of your teachers are going to call him unsophisticated, unenlightened, a bigot, a legalist, a sexist, maybe even sexually repressed, a homophobe, whatever else they can think of in order to dismiss him. He'll be accused of twisting and distorting the message of Jesus into a religion which they're going to find despicable. Listen, guys, the single most important person in history is Jesus. The most credible witnesses to Jesus easily are the people who did life with him, who served him with nothing to gain personally and with everything to lose in this world. And Paul was one of them. Brilliant, passionate, a Jesus hater who did this amazing 180, spent the rest of his life serving the one he had once hated, costing him everything in this world. This letter is from Paul from Paul, chosen by the will of God, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle, a messenger, an emissary of Christ Jesus. We're going to spend the next three months listening to some of the amazing things this Paul says about Jesus and about what it means to be a Jesus follower. Some things that are very counterintuitive, some things that are very countercultural, but these things can change your life. Some of you guys might be thinking, so he's smart. So are others. I know. 
Others of you might be thinking, so he did a 180. His life changed, so have others. I know, you're right. You might be thinking he sacrificed a lot, so have others. It doesn't make him right. And you're right. Doesn't. But listen, guys. How many of the others that you listen to have a personal face-to-face with Jesus like Paul and the other apostles did? Wouldn't that count for a lot? And in the end, if he was called by God to be an apostle, and if he was guided by God in what he said and did, wouldn't that count for a lot? And I suspect the Holy Spirit's going to prick your hearts on that one. For the next three months, we're going to lean into Paul through this very remarkable little letter to this very unremarkable little church. And I think you're going to feel God's Holy Spirit using Paul's words to tweak you and to guide you. So I hope you come along for the ride. It's going to be fun. Why don't you pray with me, please? Father, we're so grateful for the witness of guys like this. They had nothing to gain personally. They had everything to lose. But they met you, and it changed their lives. And you've appointed them to to guide us. For that we are thankful. Give us the wisdom and the courage to listen. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.